with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Well, we were hoping to have Audrey Schwartz from Active Support Against Poverty in to talk about their work in Prince George, but for some reason she doesn't want to talk to us. So again, it is a double shot of front burner coming up in about 20 minutes or so. A look at India's farmers deepening resolve. But first off, here is yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. This week was Taiwan's National Day, and this year the island wanted to send a message. This is an extraordinary sight. Four kinds of domestically produced missiles rolling through the capital in front of Taiwan's presidential palace. An ominous sign of escalating regional tensions. Most Taiwanese people see themselves as part of, of an independent country. China says there is only one China, and Taiwan is part of it. Just last week, China sent more than 100 planes into Taiwan's self-declared identification zone. And the U.S. and the West, they've been using this moment as a chance to push back against China with military exercises of their own. The U.S., U.K., and Japan have been moving warships in the region. Two American, one Japanese, and a dozen other warships off Okinawa. I've been in the for 20 years. I've never been in such a showcase of naval power. Because for people outside Taiwan, Taiwan has become this flashpoint for a U.S. and a China that are both increasingly bellicose. So what does that mean for the people who actually live there? Brian Hugh is a founding editor of New Bloom magazine in Taiwan, and he joins me from Taipei now. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. Thanks for having me. It's great being on. I, I wonder if you could bring us up to speed on, on what we've seen from China and Taiwan over the past few weeks. So, so if you looked up in the sky in the capital of Taiwan, what, what would you have seen? Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you look up in the skies, you would see uh, sometimes airplanes. These are Taiwanese planes. Uh, so this is in preparation for a national day because you have the usual thing of flyovers from planes. They release colorful smoke and, and that sort of thing. Or you might see helicopters, um, helicopters with the national flag. Uh, and so this is a uh, normal um, just for a national day every uh, year. Uh, but this time around, there's also the Chinese military threats. Um, this occurs farther away. It's uh, southwest or southeast of Taiwan in the air defense identification zone. Uh, what the term refers to is normally the airspace in which aircraft identify themselves for security purposes so that the other actors in the area know who they are and why they're there. But this time around, just since Chinese National Day on October 1st, one has seen repeated records uh, broken in terms of the number of Chinese warplanes sent into Taiwan's uh, air defense identification zone. And mm. so this is around 150 um, records were continually broken. There's one day there's more than 50 planes in uh, just one day. And that's 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 a new record. And and so what what's the purpose of China doing that? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, for Chinese National Day, because of the fact that China claims Taiwan to be part of it, then the attempt is made to intimidate Taiwan, that mm -hmm. if you try to maintain your de facto independence um, or uh, or else, effectively, that, that uh, in the past, China's war and the threat of force is still on the table if Taiwan resists its efforts at uh, facilitating unification. 
And so uh, this has been on the increase in in, in past uh, in the past year, just Chinese uh, flybys, Chinese air incursions into uh, Taiwan's air defense identification zone are sometimes occurring at a, a near daily uh, scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and China also sometimes attempts to signal its military capacities to this extent, um, for example, conducting flybys in daytime and also nighttime. I know on Saturday, Chinese President Xi Jinping vowed to realize a, quote, peaceful reunification with Taiwan. Unification is the hope of all Chinese people. If China can be unified, all Chinese will enjoy a happy life. If China can't unify, everyone will suffer. How significant is that, 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 he, that he said that? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because in uh, 2019, he provoked a lot of backlash in Taiwan. Uh, people rallied behind Tsai, Tsai Ing-wen, uh, because of the fact that Xi Jinping said, uh, force is still on the table if you resist efforts at unification. And so I think this time around, Xi was trying to vary it up a little. Uh, it, I think China realizes that this did not really work out so well last time around. But then when one thinks about the, the military threats that just took place in the days prior, I think it's uh, C is just not saying the quiet part out loud, or I think this is a case of speak softly but carry a big stick. Right, right. And you mentioned Tsai Ing-wen, that's the president of, of Taiwan. And so how did she respond here? Uh, in that respect, Tsai responded by asserting that Taiwan would stand up for itself, uh, that Taiwan has the support of members of the international community, that Taiwan was not the aggressor here, but China is the one that is threatening Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the, the, the effort is made to then say that Taiwan will stand up for itself and that, that Taiwan is not the provocateur here, because sometimes I think there is that perception. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so uh, historically, sometimes Taiwan is seen as a troublemaker in the region because of these efforts to uh, resist forcible unification, to resist military invasion. I think it's oftentimes victim blaming or putting the shoe on the other foot the U.S. or other powers in the region. Uh, sometimes when they're trying to maintain smoother relations with China, then Taiwan becomes an inconvenient obstacle. And so, for example, in the past, uh, the U.S., uh, for example, did actually sabotage Tsai Ing-wen in her 2012 uh, presidential run. A phone call was placed to the Financial Times from the White House saying that the U.S. did not have faith in her. And so this was a blow to her election bid. And Tsai is from the historically independence-leaning and democratic progressive party, which is a center-left political party. And she was up against the Chinese Nationalist Party. The Kuomintang Party maintains the status quo. Senior Communist Party figures say China is wary of the rival Democratic People's Party. And so that, that, that was an attempt to undermine her in that sense. Mm. And so how has the U.S. And, and its allies been reacting now to these latest incursions and um, uh, to, to the leadership mm. in Taiwan? Yeah, so um, what is interesting, too, is particularly in response to Chinese military threats, the U.S. then will conduct exercises of its own. Uh, for example, naval exercises conducting freedom of navigation operations, sending boats into international waters, uh, but to show a signal that to China that, that it is a presence in the region that has a stake in the matter. We'll abide by the Taiwan Agreement. That's where we are. And we made it clear that I don't think he should be doing anything other than abiding by the agreement. Um, so in the two days after Chinese National Day on October 2nd and October 3rd, though this would have to be, of course, arranged in advance, uh, U.S. carrier groups, there are two U.S. carrier groups in the area conducting joint exercises with a U.K. carrier group and a Japanese uh, vessel as well. And then after that, the U.K. carrier group uh, moved through the Luzon Strait to conduct joint exercises with the Singaporean Navy. And so this mm-hmm. was intended to show a signal. They become stuck in this pattern of escalation in which I think both perceive themselves as only reacting to the others, but it does ramp up tensions that way. Uh, both keep increasing what their exercises are. 
Yeah, and tell me more about that. The 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 concerns of 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 uh, these escalations. Uh, like like what's the biggest concern here? So um, with these military threats directed at each other, there's the possibility of an accident. Um, yeah. You know, just something goes wrong, uh, human error, or someone panics, um, something of that sort. But uh, the danger is then, if there's an accident, it's not likely this would lead to something like full-scale war or so forth, but it could be a contributing incident to that. Uh, mm-hmm. War would not break out at the tip of a hat. Um, this would, you know, be, uh, it's not so easy to launch an invasion after all. You have to prepare in advance um, to occupy for the long term, put down resistance, that sort of thing. Uh, and think about the other regional actors, the U.S. and Japan, and how they would react. But uh, if an incident happens and then the public, the Chinese public, uh, for example, is angry about it, uh, maybe then the drums of war will be beating in the background and that mm-hmm. will push Chinese leaders to uh, further escalation. And so there, mm-hmm. there is that danger. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is the first part of yesterday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. We'll have part two in a moment here on After 9. Hi, this is The Wolfman. Few entertainment genres have captured our imagination and been as successful as the good old-fashioned musical. From their vaudevillian roots to today's blockbusters, musicals have provided generations with a stream of memorable productions, show-stopping performances, and larger-than-life personalities. Join me for a unique adventure as we trip the light fantastic across more than a century of musical theater, from Broadway to the West End and all points in between. On with the show, Sunday afternoons at 2, only on Boomer Radio 93. Drug development in Canada is a long and complex process. On Wednesday, October 20th, join a panel of industry insiders who will discuss the key intellectual property opportunities and strategies related to Canadian drug development. The panel will touch on everything from identifying intellectual property to the unique challenges arising from the pandemic. Registration and more details are available through lifesciencesbc.ca. From discovery to market, the role of IP strategy in drug development. Wednesday, October 20th, 20th from 10 to 11 via Zoom. In the wake of the global pandemic, we have all had things to mourn, job losses, deaths, and even everyday changes like lack of travel. Permission to Grieve offers intimate conversations and art-based activities as a way of tackling isolated mourning and learning how to heal through community. Registration is available free but limited through Two Rivers Gallery. Permission to Grieve, October 24th from 3 to 5 at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in the Canada Games Plaza. The B.C. Chamber of Commerce has released its updated Big Thinking for Small Business, a bold plan to grow British Columbia's economy. Updated from last year's economic recovery submission, the Big Thinking for Small Business Plan underpins the pan-provincial priorities to guide the province through continued recovery efforts, focusing on three pillars, inclusivity, innovation, and competitiveness. Big Thinking for Small Business, a bold plan to grow BC's economy, is available to view at bcchamber.org. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George, you're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. As promised, here is the second segment from yesterday morning's front burner from CBC News. Listeners to this show uh, will know that we've talked a lot about Hong Kong over the, the last mm. couple of years. China's overhaul mm. of Hong Kong's electoral system to make it more Beijing-friendly, mm. the criminalization um, of protests, uh, even putting out arrest warrants for people who speak up for Hong Kong abroad. And, and I wonder if you could compare what's happening in Taiwan to, to what we've seen there. 
Yeah, it's uh, very interesting because one country, two systems as a political formula for Hong Kong was originally also intended to appeal to Taiwan, that Taiwan would be uh, welcomed back into the fold if it accepted this notion of one country, two systems, uh, but that eventually that Taiwan would just go with unification in that sense. And so Hong Kong was always supposed to be a sort of positive example for Taiwan. However, it, it turned out to be quite the opposite that once Hong Kong returned to Chinese control, one saw the deterioration of political freedoms much faster than than anticipated by many. And so in that respect, I think Taiwanese are often wary of uh, China all the more watching these events in Hong Kong. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so this is a way in which Hong Kong is supposed to be a way to lure Taiwan back in, but that that just does not happen. And so uh, Tsai, for example, has used this to her advantage in elections, uh, citing that if the KMT, the pro-China party, gets elected, well, Taiwan could go down that path. Right. And I, I wonder if for, for our listeners, you might be able to uh, remind us and, and maybe give us a little bit of a history lesson here, sort of a Coles notes of, of mm. um, uh, uh, how Taiwan uh, became what it is today. Taiwan is de facto independent. Uh, it's not recognized by most of the world's countries because of the fact that there's China lurking in the background. Um, but also the last time the same political entity controlled both Taiwan and the Chinese mainland was actually 1895. Um, so that was during the Qing dynasty. And the Qing did not control all of Taiwan either. But then that raises the question, for example, that the modern-day China, the People's Republic of China, is what overthrew the Qing dynasty. Does it inherit the claims of, of the Qing dynasty? Um, and so the population of Taiwan is uh, 2% indigenous. Um, around 88% are descended from earlier waves of Han Chinese migration from uh, China. But that occurred before, um, you know, just modern day China, before the PRC came to exist. Um, and sometimes Chinese dynasties not really consider Taiwan really to be part of it. Um, after the Sino-Japanese War, Taiwan was ceded to Japanese control. Um, so there was a 50-year Japanese colonial period. That's about like half of Taiwan's modern history. And so after that, then... Uh, Taiwan became where the Chinese Nationalist Party retreated to following their defeat in the Chinese Civil War to the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and they brought with them around what are, uh, the, the around 10% of the population now, or their descendants are around 10%. And so sometimes there is a view that, for example, before the Chinese Nationalist Party came to Taiwan, that Taiwan was empty and there's not people. But that's not actually the case. The majority of people were already here. And so this is one of the reasons why there is, uh, independent notions of identity from China. Um, and Taiwan was then an authoritarian country under the KMT, which only could have occurred actually without the, with the U.S. backing the KMT, uh, the Chinese Nationalist Party, that is, for decades under the uh, dictatorial rule of Chiang Kai-shek and his son, Chiang Ching-kuo. Um, but then Taiwan democratized in the 80s and 1990s and had uh, free and democratic elections. And uh-huh. so Tsai Ing-wen, who is the current president, is the second non-Chinese uh, Nationalist Party president in Taiwanese history. Um, this is also the first time uh, under her term that a different political parties has held a majority in the Taiwanese legislature. And so democratization is actually still something fairly recent in that respect. She has said, Tsai Ing-wen, the president, has said that, that the, the situation in Taiwan is more complex and fluid than at any other point in the past 72 years. And, and would, you, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think particularly U.S.-China relations are at the worst they've been in uh, in any recent memory. Mm-hmm. And so tensions are high and Taiwan is caught somewhere in between. Um, for example, military threats directed at Taiwan are not always only directed at Taiwan uh, with the aim of making Taiwanese fear uh, China and, and not want to resist China. It's also intended to signal the U.S. in that respect. And so then right. Taiwan is used as a proxy for the U.S. And so this complex relation is uh, very difficult to manage. 
Um, it requires dealing with just shifting terrain on, on both sides regarding just the change in consensus among U.S. policymakers regarding Taiwan policy or regarding China. Uh, I think also regional actors such as uh, Japan or South Korea or the Philippines are also wary of China, and they have conflicting claims regarding South China Sea's uh, territory sometimes or islands and, and seawaters and that sort of thing. And so I think it is a very complex situation, and, and it's hard to kind of see what will happen next. And once in a while when this kind of thing happens, such as these flybys, it is quite unpredictable. This, like, incredible politicization of Taiwan – um, how does that impact actual Taiwanese lives on the ground? Like, how does that play out day to day, you think? So it is actually a, one of those funny things, because this is always the largest political issue looming in the background, independence versus unification. That affects uh, the choices of voters, basically, for every election. Uh, which party do you go with, uh, what they stand for, or the claim to stand for at that moment in time? But the flybys, actually, they might not have necessarily had the intended effect if the attempt was to frighten Taiwanese people, because life just goes on as, as usual for the most part. Mm-hmm. People are worried of it, and it is a front-page news item. But that headline quickly becomes buried in other news items about COVID or uh, celebrity gossip or other things like that. Because I think just uh, what has happened is that there have been so many Chinese military threats in the past decades that Taiwanese are just rather used to at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes part of everyday mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a, a sense of progressing threat sometimes, which is also maybe that might actually be a matter of concern that there's no sense of progressing a developing threat uh, because it's become too monotonous and repetitive as a news item. Taiwan has sounded the alarm on a growing military threat from China. At its highest level in recent history. And more alarmingly, potentially for combat. Chinese air force that has sent a fleet of aircraft close to Taiwan. Taiwanese pilots scramble American-made fighter jets to practice responding to Chinese military incursions. Harassing the Taiwanese as well and testing their air defenses and response. With that, what do you think the people of Taiwan want for the future? Um, I think it's to be left alone for the most part. Um, Taiwan, I think a lot of Taiwanese people are aware that, for example, pursuing formal independence, uh, changing the uh, institutions of, of the constitution to realize a form of a de jure legal independence might be risky. It would provoke possibly immediate action from China. However, uh, in the meantime, just China is not governing Taiwan and people just want things to stay as they are. And so I think just wanting to be left alone is, is what they want for the most part. Let us here renew with one another our enduring commitment to a free and democratic constitutional system. The future of the Republic of China, Taiwan, must be decided in accordance with the will of the Taiwanese people. And so this is what Tsai asserted in her speech, too. Just the status quo is what Taiwan wants. Um, that right. Taiwan will not risk that through pursuing formal independence, uh, nor does it want unification, but it just wants to be alone as it is now. What do you think the odds are that that is the current course that they're on? Um, it's very difficult. I think a lot of it really depends on just dragging things out and hoping that maintaining Taiwan's uh, de facto independent status will be enough in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because as, as you drag it out, then the odds of China actually being able to take Taiwan are decreased. You have less political legitimacy to make claims over Taiwan when this just does not happen. And so maintaining a balance of power in order to ensure that happens uh, without resorting to uh, anything like armed conflict breaking out or that would lead to loss of life, trying to avoid those outcomes. I think that's what Tsai or most Taiwanese people are, are trying to aim for at present. Uh, but it's very difficult. And unfortunately, I think Taiwan is just at the mercy of these larger powers sometimes, that it is, for better or worse, a geopolitical pawn caught between the U.S. and China. And there's no clear way out. Uh, these 
powers will not just fade away tomorrow. And so what happens in the future is really, uh, it's really uncertain in that sense. Okay. Brian, thank you so much for this. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. So before we let you go today, a few days ago, U.S. officials acknowledged to the Wall Street Journal that for about a year now, U.S. troops have been quietly deployed in Taiwan. They've had a contingent of Marines and other troops there training the island's military. The training started under the Trump administration. One expert told The Guardian this training was an open secret in defense circles, but that this confirmation could further fan the flames of conflict. The story dropped the same day that the CIA announced a new mission center focused only on China. All right, that is all for today. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening to Front Burner, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. That is yesterday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch Front Burner on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When we return, we'll have a look at Tuesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News here on After 9. On October 19th, multifaceted and energetic human resource consultant Amy Saney is leading Vantage Point's Tools for Recruitment Workshop. Designed for the not-for-profit sector, this half-day presentation explores best practices that attract high performers to employee and volunteer roles. Cost is $119 with registration and full details available through the events link at thevantagepoint.ca. Tools for Recruiting, Tuesday, October 19th from 9 to noon via Zoom from the Vantage Point.ca. Designing for accessibility should be essential for any service provider, but not-for-profit capacity limits are one of the biggest barriers to reaching a wider audience. To help overcome this obstacle, Vantage Point has developed the 2021 Digital Accessibility Guide, which explores different ways to ensure your digital resources are accessible to everyone, so you can adapt quicker. The 2021 Digital Accessibility Guide is available through the, through the downloadable resources link under media at thevantagepoint.ca. Standing up against racism is an ongoing battle. How will you help? I will always be given these bigotry and hatred when I see it. I will put my passion into action. I will stand against racist words and action and speak out against hate when I see it. Hate has no place in Canada. I will continue to honor, express, and promote my Indigenous culture. This message is brought to you by the Canadian Anti-Racism Youth Coalition. Visit caryc.ca for more information about how you can stand up and speak out. Forecast from Environment Canada. A mix of sun and cloud today with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon. Wind from the south at 20 gusting to 40, a high of 8. Cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers. Gusting south winds continuing, a low of 6. For Friday, showers in the morning, then mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers. More gusting south winds and a high of 9. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. As promised, here is Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. Hi, I'm Jamie Poisson. For over 300 days, hundreds of thousands of farmers in India and their families have been taking part in what's being called one of the biggest protests in history. They're fighting against new farm laws that were brought in by the Indian government last year. 
ऐसे में किसानों के हितों की रक्षा के लिए ही दूसरा कानून बनाया गया है Prime Minister Narendra Modi says the point of these new laws is to modernize a decades-old agricultural system. But the farmers are afraid these laws will leave them at the mercy of profit-hungry corporations and could completely wipe them out. decades india's farmers have been struggling to survive nearly 60% of india's population of 1.3 billion people depend on agriculture but more than half of the country's farmers are in serious serious debt after the introduction of new seeds and chemicals brought in in the 60s under the banner of india's green revolution dried up the land and wiped out traditional crops the slow collapse of a system that so many people rely on has fueled a national suicide crisis. By some reports, 28 farmers die by suicide in India every day, and that number is likely higher. It's why widows, mothers, fathers, grandparents, even children have been camping out for over a year, refusing to back down until the laws are repealed and their voices are heard. And on Sunday last week, long drawn out tensions reached this boiling point when a convoy of cars drove into a group of protesters. They retaliated and when the dust cleared at least 8 people including 4 farmers were dead. Today on Front Burner, we're talking to CC's India correspondent Salima Shivji about this crisis decades in the making, now engulfing the country, and what the future holds for its farmers. Salima, thanks. Thanks so much for being here. No problem. Uh, so, so I want to go back and start where things really started to to heat up. Right, uh, India's farmers have have of course been feeling the stress of a system that's been in place for decades, and I know we're going to talk about that uh, in a few minutes. But it it all really came to a head at the start of the pandemic when we saw Modi impose a strict lockdown and then and then bring in these sweeping. new farm laws. India's lockdown couldn't have come at a worse time for farmers. They're at their busiest between Farmers in India are stepping up the pressure on the government to repeal a set of laws they say will harm their livelihoods. They're the biggest challenge for Prime Minister Narendra Modi since coming into power in 2014. His government, which has suspended implementation of the laws, says they're necessary to modernize an industry which dominates the Indian economy. But farmers And can you tell me a bit about broadly what these laws are and and why the farmers are so worried about them what do they fear will happen with these new laws Well, these are three agricultural laws introduced last September, so more than a year ago now, uh, sort of without consultation. So that angered uh, farmers from the get-go. The farmers see them as that the fact that they'll cut into their livelihoods, really squeezing out the small farmer, and they're worried it gives large corporations all of the power. So mainly, the changes in these laws—it's sweeping change to the whole agricultural system in India. It's quite. drastic the most drastic change in decades and it really changes how crops are sold on the market uh, farmers are really worried that the laws uh, will dismantle mandis which is this traditional system that the farmers use to sell most of their produce so it's a bit of a complicated system it's been around since the early 20th century uh, there's they're basically wholesale markets they're controlled by the government so they're regulated and mandis act as a bit of a middle middleman between the farmers and whomever they're selling to but the 
benefit of the mundies is they guarantee a minimum price to farmers. So they shelter them from the free market, right? So the farmers are able to get what they want for their crops. The farmers say that these new laws really cut away that safety net and leave them exposed and at greater risk of losing their land. And remember, so many of India's farmers have, have tiny plots of land, you know, fewer than five acres. And it's very hard to make a profit off of that small parcel of land. So worry here is that they will lose that minimum price uh, because the system will be opened up to larger corporations. Right, right. And, and tell me a little bit more about these corporations that they're concerned that they're concerned about. Yeah, they're concerned that they will uh, sort of be squeezed out. That's the fear on the farmers. And they're worried in particular uh, about two of India's most prominent businessmen, Adani and Ambalani. They aren't really yet big players in agritech or farming. Uh, but, but the farmers are worried that, you know, corporations like those controlled by those those two men will get the upper hand here. They feel they'll be left powerless to sort of negotiate a fair price for their crops once that Monday system is gone, if that is indeed what these laws lead to. Right, the system that that essentially protects prices for them. One of the biggest debates on social media is, will the Adani and Ambani groups benefit from the farm laws? Will farmers pay the price with corporates walking away with all the benefits from the farm laws? In fact, these are some... I do understand that that farmers do contend that the current system, the Monday system, isn't perfect, right? And there are some economists who echo Modi here in, in saying that these new laws will actually benefit farmers in the economy? And, and what, what is the government's position and the economists that, that agree with the government's position? Yeah, that's right. It's important to note plenty of independent experts and economists do think that the agricultural system in India needs to be modernized, just perhaps not the way the Modi government has tried to go about it. So the government insists that the reforms are long overdue, that they'll really bring India's agricultural system into the present. And the prime minister, Narendra Modi, says farmers will be able to sell their crops to private firms. And and he contends that that gives them more control, you know, more choice over what they're going to get. But Modi really argues that the farmers will benefit from this. He said that the new farm laws will bring in more opportunity for farmers as they will get access to more markets and new technology. The Prime Minister further added that the government is committed to increasing the income of farmers through the reforms. He also said that the farm laws will remove the agriculture barriers which will empower farmers. Speaking on, It's also important to note that the Modi government stance has shifted somewhat uh, over, you know, these sustained massive protests. We're almost at a year now that farmers have been protesting. So at first, the central government government really did come out very strongly. You know, the internet at those protest sites around the border of India's capital, the internet was suspended for several days. The farmers were vilified in some quarters. Uh, Modi himself in parliament talked of agitators taking over and infiltrating the protests. Now, the government also had a really strong reaction to what it deemed as foreign interference, you know, the foreign spotlight abroad on the farmers' protests. We saw Rihanna tweet about it. So did Greta Thunberg, right? Um, and India's government was none too pleased. They basically said, hey, you know, these celebrities just don't get it. But the farmers haven't gone away. You know, they've forced the government to the negotiating table over and over, really forced them to make some concessions. There have been many rounds of talks that haven't yet led anywhere. So there's a bit of a deadlock. But even so, the laws are suspended for now by order of India's Supreme Court. I know 
much of the protests and, and a lot of the anger is concentrated in, in three major states, right? Um, Punjab, Haryana, and Uttar Pradesh. And I understand that a lot of this is taking place in these large entrenched camps. And, and you've been there. And, and what is life like at these camps? It's actually fascinating to see. The camps are sprawling. There's three very, very large ones at three different spots surrounding India's capital. Uh, they stretch for kilometers on end. They're kind of tucked underneath overpasses. They, they're blocking major roads. And it's really entrenched. It's like little villages that have sprung up, right? You see trucks, you see tractor trailers that are parked and covered in tarps where the farmers are, are sleeping 24-7 now. Others are intense. There are these large kitchens where people cook for everybody. There are chai stands. There are women making stacks and stacks of roti that they hand out to everyone, right? Last time I was there, I, I saw a long lineup at, at the milk station uh, where people were waiting, you know, for their jug of milk for the day. And, you know, there are clinics, there are pharmacies, there's even libraries at, at these protest sites. There's a, there's a dentist's booth at, at, at one of them, too. So it's, it's a real village. And one farmer I spoke with actually called it a well-oiled machine. And, and you, you see that. It, it is. Some stay there all the time, but other farmers actually rotate in and out. They go home for a few weeks to tend their crops and they come back. And I met people of all ages there. You know, I met one farmer who was 90 years old. He was just sitting outside his tiny tent where he stays with nine other people. And when I asked him how old he was, he laughingly told me he remembers India's partition really well, which was obviously back in 1947. That's how old he is. And yet he's been living at the protest camp in these difficult conditions. You know, it's a very rainy monsoon season. It was soaking, it was humid. And he just kind of shrugged and told me, this is my life now. It's okay. This is my home. And I'll be here until we win this fight. I do understand that there have been several deaths at these camps uh, since the protests began, and, and what's contributing to that? Yeah, it's it's hard to pinpoint. There are actually shrines at the camps to remember those who have died since you know on site since the protests began. The farmers' unions say nearly 550 people have died at the camps since they were set up back in the end of November of last year. Of illness, you know, heart attacks. Many of the farmers are older, like the 90-year-old I mentioned. There's cold weather over the winter. The Delhi area gets quite cold. Uh, road accidents as well, and possibly COVID-19. You know, virtually nobody wears a mask at the protest camps. It's, you know, hard to stay clean. And there have also been suicides at, at the camps. You know, it's hard to get a clear sense of how many, but certainly living conditions there are, are difficult. You know, you mentioned um, this this issue of, of suicide. And, and, you know, I suppose to live in these conditions at these camps, there's, there's obviously a certain level of, of desperation there from from these farmers that really want to see things changed. So, so can we talk about uh, some of the underlying issues here, the broader context? And part of that includes this hidden crisis of, of suicide among farmers that is seldom talked about, right? And, and what can you tell me about that? Yeah, India has one of the world's highest suicide rates, and there has been a suicide crisis in India's farming community for decades. But it has been building over the last few years as the conditions worsen. You know, in some states, suicide rates among farmers have increased 10 times in just the last five years, mainly yeah, that, that's a, you know, an incredible statistic. And that's mainly because of the stress of squeezing profit from those smaller and smaller parcels of land that I was talking about. You know, farmers easily fall into debt, you know, whether they're buying expensive pesticides to keep, you know, their, their crop safe or subsidizing bad crop yields if there's a drought. 
they're also growing crops that aren't very lucrative. You know, rice, for example, takes a whole lot of water. Groundwater has been depleted in so many places. So it costs money to build deeper and deeper wells and, and get that water to, to grow their their rice. So money that many farmers just don't have. So suicide really has been prevalent in so many of these communities, so much so that there's even a shorthand for it in some areas. You know, there's a phrase, consuming sulfus, and sulfus is a pesticide that's readily available on farms that many farmers actually use to kill themselves. And in, in some areas, people actually don't say, oh, my father killed himself. They will say he took sulfus. Oh my God. That's, that's horrible. Horrible. So, so obviously the 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 stress that that these farmers are feeling now with regards to these new laws and and feeling like some government protections that they had are going to be taken away from them is has only compounded a crisis that already existed absolutely there there's a lot of pain out there that they're feeling and and there's the worry that that pain will just continue and you know lead to more suicide rates and and more more crippling debt the story of one woman that you spoke to in, in your reporting on, on this. Her name is Kieran Kaur, but can, can you tell me her story? Yeah, Kieran is a really strong young woman. So her father took his own life a, a few years ago now, and, and Kieran was just blindsided. They were really very close. She was, you know, the closest to her father, but she had no idea he was sinking further and further into debt. But suicide is, is, you know, a sad reality for her family, like I was mentioning, and for so many others. When I was there in Punjab at her home, speaking with Kieran and her mother, one by one, widows kept dropping by, you know, Kieran's aunties. Her, her father was one of three brothers who all killed themselves because of farming debt. Now, they had a fourth brother. He's the only one still alive. So three out of four brothers killed themselves. And, and Kieran, you know, was... It's obviously in pain, but she started an organization to help widows in her area. So she's, she takes the bus all over. She's trying to help these widows apply for government compensation, trying to support those who are thinking of suicide as an option out of, you know, the debt that they're, that they're experiencing. So, uh, you know, a really moving story. Um, that really brings home how hard it is for so many farmers in India. I still can't believe he's gone, but it furthers my resolve to do something about it. How do we overcome this issue? That is the first part of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News here on 93.1 CFIS FM. We'll have the second part of that program in a moment here on After 9. The Alzheimer's Society of BC is continuing their series of online webinars. Everyone is encouraged to learn more about dementia and its stark impact on Canadians through their website, alzbc.org. While there, you can also register for their free webinars or watch previous presentations. The next webinar is Focus on Behavior, Targeted Strategies for Denial, Paranoia, Anxiety and Shadowing, next Wednesday from 2 to 3. The Alzheimer's Society of BC, bringing you support and information for dementia at alzbc.org. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council's next presentation of Fit Nation Leader Training is December 7th to 9th online. 
If you have a passion for keeping your community moving, then apply for Fit Nation Leader Training. Training equips leaders with the skills and resources to design and deliver a physical activity program for all ages and abilities. Application and full details are available through iSpark.ca. That's the next Fit Nation Leader Training, December 7th to 9th. Application deadline is 4 p.m. October 20th. As part of its Pride series, Theatre Northwest presents a stage reading of Natalie Meisner's play Speed Dating for Sperm Donors on October 29th. Julian Legere will produce the play about a lesbian couple who want a baby or two. Audience members are warned the play includes some mature language, sexual content, and references to homophobic violence. Speed Dating for Sperm Donors, part of the Pride series, October 29th at Theatre Northwest in the Park Hill Center. Tickets are available at tickets.theaternorthwest.com. Forecast from Environment Canada, a mix of sun and cloud today with a 30% chance of showers late this afternoon. Wind from the south at 20 gusting to 40, a high of 8. Cloudy tonight with a 30% chance of showers, gusting south winds continuing, a low of 6. For Friday, showers in the morning, then mainly cloudy with a 30% chance of showers. More gusting south winds and a high of 9. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And now the second part of Tuesday morning's front burner from CBC News. You know, I want to talk about what's been happening lately because there has been uh, some, some real developments on this. Last week, we saw this really violent incident at the site of, of one of, of these farmer protests in Uttar Pradesh, and India's most populous state. And can you talk me through what happened? Yeah, there, there, so there's video from the scene actually that clearly shows that there were there was a group of farmers walking along a road in Uttar Pradesh as part of a protest. They have flags in their hands. It's quite a you know bit of a quiet protest. They're not, they're not even really chanting. Then a jeep barrels into them from behind, like a, a really chaotic scene that you see in the aftermath. Seeing these farmers, four farmers were killed. Three people in the vehicle, or who were workers with the BJP uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's party, uh, were pulled out and attacked, as was the driver. So they also died. You know, at least eight people died. Now, the son of a minister in Modi's government, uh, the junior home minister, is actually accused of ordering his driver to run into the farmers. His name is Ashish Mishra. He was just arrested on the weekend. Uh, but the arrest actually came a full six days after the violence. And, and that actually sparked a lot of anger. And, and there's been a fair bit of criticism over how the case has been handled by authorities who seemed reluctant to sort of investigate at first or to charge the sun. So there has been, you know, a lot of attention on that case in the last week since that violent incident about a week ago. Salima, what does that say to you that the that the animosity, the anger between these two sides has gotten to the point where now a minister's son is is being accused of ordering a jeep to run into a crowd of protesters? That's quite extraordinary. Yeah, it's a definite clear escalation uh, because there hasn't been there's been, you know, little spurts of violence uh, throughout the protests. You know, the, the police perhaps being a bit heavy handed uh, it, at, in certain incidents earlier uh, during this nearly year long protest. But but this is the most violent yet, the worst yet uh, since the protests began. And, you know, the, the farmers were also incensed even just before that. I think September was actually really hot month for, for emotions around this protest. There was another incident in Haryana state where during a protest, some farmers were, were beaten by police with their batons. Uh, and, and the farmers demanded compensation for families in that case and a, ju- a judicial inquiry. They actually did get 
those measures. There will be an investigation. So that was seen very much as a win on the farmer side. Everybody was talking about it when I was there at the camps last month. So, so there's definitely an escalation. I think the, there, any bit of violence quickly leads to a hardening of the farmer's position as well and, and sort of a bolstering of their resolve that, that they're not going anywhere. They're going to stay at this and fight these laws. I guess my question though is, what is it that has led uh, uh, members of the BJP party or these police who are beating protesters to be so incensed by the the farmers' position that they would that they would resort to this kind of violence? Like, why the animosity towards the farmers? I'm not sure it's uh, incensed at the position, but perhaps because of the length of the protest. Like they, they, you know, everybody you talk to says they're they're not going to go anywhere. They're going to keep fighting this uh, till the end of time, till the laws are repealed. I, I think that's where the frustration comes, perhaps from the other side, because there is this deadlock and these protests have been going on for a sustained period of time. Mm-hmm. And have they have they been like disrupting normal life there? They, they have been. I mean, they've taken over parts of highways and blocked parts of highways, but but, but that has sort of become a, a little bit commonplace. The, the, the roads are kind of blocked off. Uh, you can't, you know, head in those directions around Delhi. That, those are the protests that are in place and haven't moved. And but what has ramped up in the last month, I would say for the end since the end of August and the month of September, has been these rallies that are going on, uh, you know, in different states, kind of across uh, India mainly focused on Uttar Pradesh. And and the farmers are moving into the political sphere as well, right? They are they have said that they're going to hold rallies in Uttar Pradesh. They're it's a really important state. It's the most populous state. It holds the most seats. Uh, and Modi's party, the BJP, is in power in Uttar Pradesh. Uh, there is a state election coming up early next year and the farmers have said they are targeting that election, they will keep going out there and have the having these rallies and, you know, make their point that they believe the Modi government is anti-farmer. And, and the farmers are a massive voting bloc, you know, um, more than half of India's population have their livelihoods linked to agriculture. So they, they do have political power and political sway. And that also leads to a, a major challenge for the Modi government. After 300 days, like, what is the way out of this standoff? Is, is there a way out of this standoff? Well, on the surface, it, it doesn't really look like it. It seems like both sides are very much entrenched. You know, the farmers are vowing not to back down. And there's not really a subtle way for the Prime Minister Modi to back down, even if he wanted to. You know, this has become a major challenge for the Modi government that isn't really used to such sustained opposition, you know, on one issue for a long period of time. One option, you know, some on the ground and in the know are talking about, you know, the laws are currently suspended. What if they just stay suspended? Could that drag on? Could that, could that be, could they be suspended until India's next general election? That's a long time for now, right? That's in 2024, more than two years from now. The farmers are asking for a full repeal of the laws. So would they even be satisfied if there was an indeterminate suspension? Maybe. But there are talks going on. Really very few public signs that this will end anytime soon. Okay. Uh, Salima Shindy, thank you so much for this. You're welcome. all 
for today. I'm Jamie Poisson. Thanks so much for listening to Front Burner. We'll talk to you tomorrow. On 93.1 CFIS FM, that is the second part of Tuesday morning's Front Burner from CBC News. You can also catch the Front Burner on CBC's Listen app or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. When After 9 returns, we'll do a quick wrap for your Thursday edition. Children ages 5 to 12 can climb, jump, and slide at two new playgrounds in Prince George. The latest addition to the city's play areas are in Seymour Park on Ellison Drive and St. John Park in Upper College Heights. Both parks include double tower and taut friendly slides, two bay swing sets, climbing structures, and saddle spinners. To view amenities and to get directions to these and other city playgrounds, visit the city's playgrounds webpage at princegeorge.ca slash playgrounds. With winter quickly approaching, it's time to check out your furnace to make sure it's ready for the season. Enercare has created a guide to help you understand your furnace and common problems you may encounter doing an inspection. Prepare and resolve any issues well before the cold weather arrives. Check out furnace basics, furnace maintenance, repair tips, and more with the 2021 Furnace Buyer's Guide for Homeowners under heating at entercare.ca. On Thursday, October 28th, BC Schizophrenia Society members have the chance to virtually sit down with Dr. Mahesh Manan to learn more about cognitive remediation therapy in BC. Dr. Manan is part of the group bringing cognitive remediation therapy to BC. Become a member of the Schizophrenia Society today so you can take part and add your voice to build a better world for people living with serious mental illness. BC Schizophrenia Society memberships are available at bcss.org slash members. On Friday, November 3rd, Charity Village will host the first ever Charity Village Conference and Awards. This virtual event will bring together professionals within Canada's not-for-profit and charity sectors with an opportunity to be recognized for their mission, purpose, community, and recruitment initiatives. There will also be networking sessions, the opportunity to engage with exhibitors, and the inaugural Charity Village Awards. Early bird ticket pricing is currently available through Monday. The Charity Village Conference and Awards, Friday. November 3rd through charityvillageconference.com You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station 93.1 CFIS-FM And I have actually quite a bit of time to uh, chat a little bit about goings-on before we finish off today's show and uh, we got a few emails yesterday that I think it's uh, worth passing along the information on uh, not the least of which is the Regional District of Fraser Fort George is warning people that there are there's uh, uh, someone out there uh, calling uh, residents identifying themselves as from the regional district, looking for a social insurance number and stuff like that. So uh, the regional district says, yeah, they don't do that. So no. if you get a phone call, and uh, even if it says on your call display that it's from the regional district it is not from the regional district if there's if they start asking for things like your social insurance uh, social insurance mm-hmm. number or a credit card or uh, even address so be very cautious about that if you do get a call and you're you think it might be the regional district but you're not sure you can always hang up and then call the regional district directly 
on their number, uh, 250-960-4400. And they should and then, do that. And then ask uh, for whatever department uh, you were uh, talking with or, or wanting to talk with. Uh, or whatever the topic was. Uh, we also got an email from the United Way. They are doing their barbecue fundraiser again this week. They're doing it, do it once a month, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So today, tomorrow, and Saturday, 9.30 to 4, down at KMS Tool and Equipment at uh, First and Queensway. And they're doing a little bit of a twist for this week. Uh, I don't know if it'll be... Uh, if uh, it'll, I imagine it'll probably happen again in November and maybe even December, but not usually it's a, a hot dog and a pop for a donation. Mm-hmm. So you give them some cash. Uh, but with the winter months coming uh, on us pretty quick, you can also make a donation of a winter clothing item or a non-perishable food item to get your uh, smoky that would work yeah Yeah. so help uh uh, help build up the food banks build the food banks and also the warm clothing yeah exactly as we head into the winter months uh i've been ignoring this for a while the covid dashboard (laughs) (laughs) but i thought you know we have time let's let's take a look at it uh province-wide this is yesterday's numbers uh, total new cases, 605. Active cases, 5,172. And uh, sadly, I think uh, the northern region is still the leader in the province as far as... Uh, Unfortunately, we yeah, are. Yeah. But, uh, total new cases yesterday, 67. So that's not too bad from what has been happening. Uh, active cases, 689, and I believe that's down. I think the high was up around 1,000 at yeah. one point, wasn't oh, it? Was, it was It was pretty bad. So hopefully those numbers start to come down. Uh, of course, the real bad news is uh, they expect the numbers to increase as the, as the weather gets colder and people start coming inside, similar to what we saw last year. And unfortunately, more deaths. You know, I know. Yeah, yeah. The uh, current death uh, total, 187. Uh, 19 people in critical care, a total of 87 in hospital. So, yeah, the numbers are still up there, but uh, fingers crossed it'll start to come down. Vaccination is, uh, we're well, well up over 80%, I mm-hmm. think, right now, uh, double vaccinated. So, uh hopefully that uh gets us through the next you know four five six months as we get into the well we've already had to transfer 55 patients so oh down south hopefully these numbers will come down i mean oh for sure yeah we're maxed now a couple of things event wise that are going on that's worth noting uh not the least of which uh prince george folk fest uh gearing up for cold snap i'm sure they're still not they haven't, you know, talked about how Cold Snap is going to, uh, what it's going to look like this coming January, February. But they do have a uh, a fall event coming up. In fact, it's called Music in the Fall, or Deket Shun Inli. And it's a celebration of indigenous art, culture, and musicians. And that is going to be taking place at the Udadun Bayo Conference Center. Uh, that's the old bingo hall, the mm-hmm. corner of Third uh, and Vancouver Street. 
I haven't actually been in there since they renovated, but uh, apparently it's quite the uh, uh, quite the uh, venue now. Yeah, yeah, very open. Quite yeah. nice. So that's coming up October twenty second, twenty third. Not that far away, uh, featuring uh, artists like Twin Flames, uh, e- uh, Equal, and uh, Wesley Hardesty. Uh, Wesley Hardesty is a, a fiddler, and uh, you don't. I, I, I don't know if he's Métis, but uh, Aboriginal descent, and uh, very, very good. I, I've caught a, f- a few of his, uh, well, we downloaded a few of his pieces to promote the event. Uh, now, all the shows are going to be live-streamed at no charge, and you can find out the details at coldsnapfestival.com. Uh, ticket information will also be available on that site when... That is determined, but I think they're waiting pretty much till the event they to did, determine they did how much. They announce the date, so. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's October 22nd, 23rd, so it's just a week away, uh, just over a week away. But uh, there will be, I would imagine, there will be a uh, limited number of people allowed at the venue. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, they'll probably do the... Um, uh, passport. You'll have to have had your double shot, etc. But uh, all the details on tickets and or if you just want to access it at home, uh, coldsnapfestival.com to find out that. And one other thing that we have been, uh, well, we're kind of excited about is uh, Genevieve Jade, a local artist, has got a new album on the way. Uh, I believe the release date is the 26th of November, uh, but end of November is the release date, and on December the 4th, she's going to be doing a CD release party, and we're we're still confirming it, but we are hoping to have that right here in the Q3 building. Yeah, we did an interview with her. She's quite, well, inter- quite interesting. When was that? That was quite a while ago with Yeah, Alan. yeah. Well, yeah. we'll be doing, uh, Alan's already booked her for another interview. Good just before the the cd release party so uh yeah we'll be able to and and by that time we will have some of the new tracks to to be able to play and uh yeah hopefully we'll be able to do the uh the cd release party here we're going to figure out the logistics of that and get that all going and uh, start promoting that as well that would be awesome yeah Yeah, that'll be great so that's uh things on the horizon things to look uh, forward to and don't forget uh get your smoky uh, the fundraising barbecue down at KMS Tools, Queensway and First Avenue today, tomorrow, or Saturday. And you can either donate money or clothing or winter non- clothes or, winter winter clothes. Clothes or yeah. non-perishable food items uh, to get your smoky uh, this month for the United Way fundraiser. That'll wrap it for today's edition. We'll have the Friday front burner tomorrow plus the Friday panel when we, be, when we return after 9. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to CFIS-FM Prince George, a not-for-profit community radio station broadcasting with 500 watts of power at 93.1 on the FM dial. CFIS-FM is owned and operated.